session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. I'll be having a guest later today, so I will not be taking phone calls, and I'll introduce you to her shortly, but I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, uh, and you can uh, contact me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and also get updates on my show there as well. And the podcasts are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page, iTunes and Spotify. Uh, so let me get right into the books before I do later on today. I will be joined by Professor Dr. Nushin Valizadeh. We're going to be talking about uh, race, racism. Of course, it's very much in the public eye right now, but a very important topic to always discuss. And we are going to unpack a lot of what's going on, and I'm very happy to have her on to share her insights about what's going on in America, what has been going on uh, since America has been a country, but also what Iranians can do. I know this show is not only for Iranians and Iranian-Americans, but many of the listeners are Iranian, and we want to make sure that we are part of the solution and part of helping what's going on rather than perpetuating uh, or doing nothing, which also is not acceptable. So looking forward to have Dr. Nushin Valizada join me after the first segment, um, which I'll get into now. And so I'm talking about the books today because I did not do a show Monday night. There were protests that were starting in Westwood, and because of the unpredictability of what had been going on, we wanted to send everyone from Radio Hamra home earlier just to make sure that everyone was safe and also to allow the protesters their space as well. So I did not do a show Monday night, which is why I'm going to talk about the books today and then bring Dr. Valizada on after this first break. So uh, let me first announce the book of the week for this week. It is Transcend the New Science of Self-Actualization by Scott Barry Kaufman. I just started the book very briefly, but it seems very interesting looking at self-actualization at Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how even he himself did not intend for it to become what it seems like it has become, this pyramid of needs, so to speak. And so this book is in a way an extension of that work and also looking back at the work of Maslow in light of new science and looking at some of his unpublished works as well. So it seems very interesting. Uh, again, that's Transcend by Scott Barry Kaufman. I look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on Monday night's show. The book I'll talk about today, last week's book of the week, is Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Now, I had picked this book. Uh, I purchased it a uh, little while ago on the recommendation of my friend Chelsea. She mentioned that her family was considering doing this as a kind of book club. I think it was her family, but she mentioned that. And so when she told me about the book, I was very interested. I enjoy the work of James Baldwin and am going to do his book, The Fire, next time soon in the next few weeks. Usually I don't have uh, the same author twice so shortly. It happened recently, actually, but not something I commonly do. But in this case, uh, I think it's important that because of the current state of people 
talking about what's going on or what has been going on in America when it comes to race and racism for the African-American community. It'll be important to continue the conversations about this topic and then so we don't forget about it, which so often is the case. Something happens, people might be outraged or get some attention, but then after a few days or weeks, we kind of go back to quote unquote normal and we uh, stop talking about it and stop doing anything about what's going on. So uh, look for that. Uh, race and racism is a topic I've discussed many times on this show, but I will make sure to continue to do that as well. Um, so this book, Giovanni's Room, was quite interesting and fascinating. And James Baldwin is incredible. I really invite you to read his work, but also watch him speak. He is very passionate and he shares things in such incisive ways. And that's what I felt as I read this book. I'll talk about the, the story. Uh, I don't read a lot of literature on the show here, but when you do, and as you get older for myself, I remember as a kid you read or teenager, you read literature and it's just about the story. But as you get older, it's more about what's happening between the story, meaning uh, the way the author can get into the minds of the characters and share that with you. And all great writers have to be very good at understanding the human experience. And so you feel that in this book, that there's a story, there's a lot of very important themes related to homosexuality and, and people trying to hide their sexuality and the kind of troubles and different things that can come up related to that. Um, but also you get a sense of how James Baldwin was able to understand people, understand humanity, and you also see that in his book related to race and racism in America, which is very incisive and, and just, it kind of gives you a punch to the gut. And that's what I felt as I was reading this book, is you read certain aspects of the, the story and it's happening, and then all of a sudden I feel something really deep in my stomach or something really deep in my heart that it almost surprised me and there's a way that he is able to be so incisive and deep with his uh, words and his prose that were very interesting um, like for example there was an interesting part for me he I'm looking at the book right now on page 21 he says perhaps as we say in America I wanted to find myself this is an interesting phrase not current as far as I know in the language of any other people which certainly does not mean what it says, but betrays a nagging suspicion that something has been misplaced. I think now that if I had had any intimation that the self I was going to find would turn out to be only the same self from which I had spent so much time in flight, I would have stayed at home. But again, I think I knew at the very bottom of my heart exactly what I was doing when I took the boat for France. And I thought that was so uh, profound. You know, we talk about finding ourselves, and it's sometimes used in a cliche way, and it is sometimes cliche, this thought that we have to find ourselves. And often we think we have to find ourselves by going somewhere, by going away, traveling the world. And it can help. I think actually it's not the places we go necessarily that is leading to that change or finding ourself. But sometimes it's going away from home, home not in the comfort feeling, but usually when we're home and in our family, we take on a role and become a certain person that gets very fixed within the family dynamic and family structure. And so there isn't a lot of room for growth and exploration into who we are. And so often people go away 
to, to create that physical space to then give them the psychological space to explore who they are and understand themselves. But also very profound in what he shared there was that uh, we often think it's something different from who we are now when often it isn't that. And even when you think of potentially the issues of sexuality that come, could come into play that often we're trying to get away from parts of ourselves when actually when we try to create a healthier self, even when it comes to therapy, we're trying to integrate the different aspects of who we are. It's not that you get rid of your anger completely, but that you understand it and integrate it to your whole psyche uh, rather than get rid of something. So I thought that was very interesting and in just a few sentences expressed so much about what it means to quote unquote find ourselves and the ways that we often think we're lost, but maybe it's because we have the journey uh, misunderstood or we don't really understand what that journey is. So I felt that was quite uh, a beautiful uh, way of putting things. Um, but so throughout the book, you also see the story of David, who is the, uh, you can say protagonist, but the narrator. So it's from his point of view, this story and this book. And he does have this, it seems like an inability to love. And it, and it comes out throughout the book. He has a fiance who is unsure about getting married to him. And there's a lot of uncertainty there. And while she's away, he's also with various people, including men. Uh, and he falls in love with this man Giovanni but then we see this experience he has where it's so wonderful and beautiful at times but he also seems frozen and unable to let himself really love him and he does talk about well we we can't love each other because of the sexuality and how that looks in society and things of that sort but you do get the sense that it's not just about that that he's somehow feeling unable to love someone to let himself feel that feeling and, and this is something i come across so much i think of course it's not a new thing but i see it a lot in clients and in people in general currently as well that there are these blocks we have to allowing ourselves to truly love someone and to allow for the vulnerability that is necessary to love and to be in love and to create emotional intimacy and connection and we so often have the opportunities. He has a fiance, he has this man in his life, and Giovanni, as they are um, experiencing what you can call a breakup or the ending of their relationship, does allude to this, or not allude, he says it very clearly, you, that you never loved, never loved me. You, I don't think you ever can love someone that you won't be able to love. And so I thought that was quite fascinating to see this um, expression of what we, I don't want to simplify it to say it's just a fear of intimacy or fear of love, but many of us have because love is something at once very exciting and beautiful and something that we're all yearning for. But it's also something that we fear, fear of being close, fear of losing ourselves. going back to that idea of um, uh, finding ourselves. We're afraid to lose ourselves when we merge with someone, when we get so close to someone. And of course, that someone can hurt us when we get close. And related to that, and we talk about knowing ourselves and loving ourselves first, there is that old cliche about you have to love yourself before someone else can love you or before you can love someone else. But when we aren't so comfortable or we're not comfortable with who we are and our true self and what's deep within us, then we are afraid to show that to someone else because we're afraid that they won't love that 
it won't be responded to by love and acceptance, but that will lead to rejection, that will lead to even ridicule, it will lead to someone making us feel that we are bad at our very core. And so that is very scary. This is why true emotional intimacy does come with risk. There's just the initial risk of exposing ourselves emotionally and what the other person will do and how they will respond. And then there's that risk that once we've connected to someone, there's so much invested in this relationship as far as our emotions go and how we feel and who we are, that if they hurt us either intentionally or something happens to the relationship in some way or something happens to our lover, it's very painful. And so there always is that risk when, when you come to love and you feel that David in this book has a hard time really taking that leap, that risk. He does start to create this connection and relationship with Giovanni, but you still feel like he is holding back at some level. And it's interesting how that's expressed in ways where he's at one moment uh, feeling so much love and desire for him, but in that same moment, even the same sentence, expressing that he's disgusted by Giovanni as well. And exactly what that is, where that's coming from, it's, it's hard to say, but it could be a defense or a protective type of thing. Of course, here I am analyzing it with using psychological jargon, but there is these interesting contrasts where he's feeling so close, so connected, but also disgusted by him. Uh, of course, even in love, we will have anger and rage and different types of very negative feeling towards our loved ones. So it doesn't mean it's just all bad or you aren't going to have any of those feelings for someone you love. Um, but we see it very strongly in the character of David, this back and forth, and it seems like staying frozen in a way, not allowing himself to actually love. And then in response, if you don't allow ourselves truly to love someone, we never can fully be loved either. So the book, the story is important, and it's very deep, and there's a lot going on, you know, with his fiance going away and then coming back to Paris and then how it affects him and Giovanni and what happens to Giovanni is tragic as well. Uh, it's funny to say no spoilers on a book that's probably, I don't know, 50 or 60 years old, but still I don't necessarily need to even get into that because to me the significance of the book isn't just the story, it's the depth in which uh, James Baldwin expresses the experiences of these individuals and touches on so many important topics and touches so deeply on what we all experience as human beings. So I, I highly recommend this book. It's a shorter read, but also uh, his work and watching him speak and the passion. Uh, there's the, the book, The Fire Next Time, but also a documentary came out a few years ago on his life called The Fire Next Time and so many other great works that he's done. So that was Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. And so again, after the break, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Nushin Valizadeh. We're going to talk about what's going on now in America with uh, the death of George Floyd at the hand of the police officers in Minneapolis, and also what's happened in the aftermath, but also what's happened before, that these are not new stories or a new situation, that the history is very old and troublesome. And we'll try to unpack as much of that as we can, but I'll be joined by her uh, Dr. Nushin Valizada after the break. So let's go to a, a commercial break. Uh, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. And now I'll be joined uh, by my guest for today's show. She is Dr. Nushin Valizad, and before I bring her on the air, let me tell you a bit about her and the work that she does. So Dr. Nushin Valizad has worked as a trauma-informed 
Curriculum Developer and Professor of Sociology and Education at USC and UCLA since 2015. Through an intersectional lens, her course content and teaching style employ a counter-narrative approach. On campus and in commercial professional settings, she builds and facilitates professional development trainings on anti-racist education, equity, and inclusivity. Dr. Valizada speaks, reads, and writes Farsi and English fluently and is teaching her five-year-old daughter, Serena, both languages as well. She's also an activist, poet, or artivist who strongly believes in the power of music and art to promote social change. She has hosted and performed social justice poetry at hundreds of college and community events in small spaces to crowds of over 22,000 people. And I should add, uh, hopefully later, if we have time, we'll get to share some of her poetry with you. And look out for her upcoming poetry book titled Women, and that's spelled W-O-M-X-N, um, which she can talk about that title as well and that, that word um, at some point if we have time. Um, and so look out for that book, Women, of her poetry, hopefully coming out soon. So without further ado, uh, let me ring to you, Dr. Nushin Valizada. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Well, thank you. And um, I, I, you know, I can first just introduce you to say that we met back in, I think it was November, at an event at UCLA where you were moderating and I was on a panel uh, there formed by the Iranian student group, which was wonderful. And I think we saw that we were uh, seemed to be aligned uh, on some of the ways we we're thinking about things. And, you know, I was planning to have you on before, I think, I forgot what the exact date was, but then with the coronavirus situation and having to not be in the studio, we decided to put that on hold for the time being. And um, so, uh, but then with everything that was going on, we connected and decided that it's too... Uh, we have to do this sooner than later. We can't wait till we can be back in the studio. And, and I'll mention this. I'm talking so much before I even bring you on. But, um, of course, what's happening right now, it's very much in the public eye. And there's these protests and things that are happening. So it's very much in the media and on people's minds. Um, but the reason I was going to have you on a few months ago is essentially discuss these same issues. Now they have some yeah. different elements to them. Um, but these are not mm -hmm. new things that are happening in America. And, and that's something that we will touch on as well. Um, so before we get into uh, some of the issues of what's happening, I, I read in your um, description of yourself and what you do about the, the amazing work that you've done, um, but even you mentioned educating people uh, on anti-racist uh, anti -racist education, equity, and inclusivity. Can you give us a little bit of a glimpse on uh, what you do in those <coughs> regards or what that work is like? Absolutely. So really, in anything that I teach, whether it is a race class or it's a finance and higher education class, for example, that is a course I taught to doctorate students who were on the path or, or, or were growing in their field in higher ed to be deans and things like that. Um, I make sure that I, that I actually uh, use an anti-racist and intersectional lens and approach in the teaching, which means that, um, which means that really, since we already have a country and uh, much of our world, but if we're talking just about our country, that does function in racist ways with systems who have perpetuated racism um, and also along with sexism, patriarchy, things like that, then simply just not being racist is not enough because that still mm -hmm. allows these uh, inequalities to continue. 
So having an anti-racist approach is a completely different um, way where you're actually actively and intentionally being sure to uh, be uh, to um, implement anti-racist policies, whether it's in the way that hiring is taken, um, whether it is in the ways that you're actually not just being inclusive, but being proactive in the work that we do with, that, with regard to race. Um, and then on top of that, within terms of like equity and things like that, it, these aren't just conversations that need to happen in uh, education or race courses. These are combination. These are conversations that take place um, that should be taking place in business courses in uh, professional development. I've had to do so many trainings for organizations and businesses um, where they want us to. They want me to come in and talk about like implicit biases, for example. But mm-hmm. implicit bias is really just breaks it down to individual basis. So, so people take that and they're like, okay, so I should just, you know, not say this or I should try not to think this, but it really completely dismisses the whole structure and the actual powers, axioms of power who are attacking groups. Um, so this isn't really conversation that's about an individual being not racist or racist. It's about how the individual navigates in a system that is perpetuating racist policies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think... Um you know, there's so many levels and layers to this. There's not going to be one solution to it because it's not a single problem that we're talking about. And I I totally agree with you that we want to look at the individual level. We have to look at this at all levels, but that's not going to be enough. It's not enough just to say uh, we should like all people or love all people and accept all people. That is very important. And we're not I'm not against mm-hmm. that, obviously, but until we uh, address the systematic and systemic issues that relate to race and racism in this country and the historical issues and how they all intersect, we're not going to uh, get to the root and really solve the problem. So I, I completely agree with you that Absolutely. as individuals, we each do need to do that reflecting work and right. notice what are our own biases and are, how racist we each are. And I say that in the sense that everyone really is racist. So it's about how much and in what ways and mm-hmm. then what you can do to counteract to that. Um, but then also the Absolutely. systematic ways. And, and I, I love what you said about uh, it's not enough to just not be racist, which is what a lot of people say, but we really have to be anti-racist, not just in your mm-hmm. mentality, but in actually taking action to reduce racism in the world and, and America and how it impacts different people. So, of Absolutely. course, and, I, and a lot of yes. what, oh, sorry. A lot of what no, people no, um, also think of, 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 oh, I'm not racist, I don't see color, you know, that colorblinded mentality mm-hmm. is included in that. And that's something that maybe was very progressive for a certain time period a few decades ago, but it actually, what you're saying when you say I don't see color or, you know, I'm not racist, I don't I don't notice, it's, or my friend's black and I don't even see that, then you don't really see that person. If someone mm-hmm. looks at me, if someone just sees me as, oh, I just see you as a person, and they don't see me as an Iranian who is a woman, who has, not, has lived my life as a non-Christian, right? So, like, all mm-hmm. these things that are part of minority groups, then they're not really seeing me because I don't navigate life the way they do. I don't navigate like a white American Christian person. I don't navigate like a man. So um, so it, it's very convenient to say, oh, I don't see those things. It looks like you're actually, it feels like you're actually ignoring the, the reality of our system. So again, the anti-racism is the active process of eliminating racism by changing systems and organizational structures. And mm-hmm. a, another component of that, when I mention intersectionality, that's really important, is um, not not uh, 
keeping not having categories be separate so not being like oh this is race and this is gender because one there are people who are part of multiple groups mm-hmm. right so you you're not just black today and then just a woman another day or just gay today and then so for example james baldwin was a black gay man who i love that i love that book by the way who um he fled. He 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 fled America because he felt mm-hmm. like he had homophobia in the black community, and he felt like he had um, uh, racism in the gay community. So, so so he is uh, someone who had to has had oppression in multiple ways by these multiple mm-hmm. structures, and even in the communities that he's a part of. So that's another part that is really important to always be inclusive and using an intersectional lens. And if you are using an intersectional lens, and we, if there are a lot of Iranians, myself as an Iranian person is able to actually see how there's so many other people in my own ethnic group who are parts of other groups, Iranians who are also black, Iranians who are also Jewish or Muslim or Baha'i, Iranians who are also gay or trans, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, no group is going to be a monolith. And it's so important to recognize that and that people are affected uh, in different ways that, you know, we can't just say this whole group is just one thing because they conclude a lot of things. And then even the discussion of race is an interesting one, because maybe Mm -hmm. many people have heard this phrase that race is a social, uh, socially constructed uh, concept, which it is. Mm -hmm. And what that can mean is that there's no true biological basis to say we can no. determine race in a certain way or differentiate uh, in a certain way. There's so many overlaps and different things that take place at any level that you look at race. So race is, race is socially constructed, but at the same time, it doesn't mean it doesn't have huge value and impact in people's lives because we've made it very real. You know, another social construct is money. Money itself does not yeah. have actual value necessarily until we all give it value and say it has value. And so people would, I'm sure, similarly say uh, money can be a social construct, but they wouldn't say it doesn't matter. It absolutely matters in this world, unfortunately, maybe too much. Um, and so it's a very real thing in that sense. So similarly, we've made race very real and very salient and it has a big impact. So we can't ignore it either, even if it is socially constructed and in essence, not real, quote unquote, it's not something we could ignore because it's affecting people's lives every day. And so that's what we're talking about and looking at. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's real. It's, 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 it's definitely socially constructed. There's no biological component because if there were, then there would be, diseases and sicknesses that only certain races can get and even sickle cell isn't in that category so it's absolutely socially constructed but it matters it very much matters because this country has made it matter this country is one of the few countries i mean that slavery for example has happened everywhere um discrimination Mm -hmm. has happened everywhere but this is one of the few countries that based slavery on race it based value on being black or not black it based how you can actually watch homes appreciate and buy into that when you have a good job and you have good credit by if you're black or not black to be able to live in those communities that we're going to appreciate. So race is very much, along with gender, a lot of social constructs there who, that are <clears throat> um, like gender roles and things like that that have been a uh, have mattered in this country because of how the country has ha- forced groups to navigate within those realms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, as you mentioned, that this history of America is plagued by racism, plagued by slavery, which all contribute to where we still are. 
I know a lot of people think, well, that started 400 years ago, so why are we, you know, still talking about it or we should be over it? Um, you know, we don't get over something until it's dealt with and handled and we can move on from it. You know, if someone doesn't apologize and make reparations, pun intended, um, we're not going to get to a place where we can actually move on. You know, so if you, and people do this even in relationships. As a psychologist, I'll see this where, you know, a parent will say, okay, well, I did that 20 years ago, get over it. And it's until mm -hmm. you acknowledge the pain and try to make right with the pain and what has happened, it's going to be impossible for that person to truly move on. And unfortunately, that's what I think we see in America is that we have these things that started a long time ago. They continue now, but even some of these bigger things, let's say slavery, which uh, ended, you know, let's say 150 years ago. Um, but it's not that we've moved on from them because we haven't healed those wounds. And so I think we're bringing up a bunch of different topics uh, related to this issue, which I think itself shows how complex it is that we're not just talking about, mm -hmm. okay, everyone love each other more. Yes, that's true. But this is so deep and so mm -hmm. woven into the fabric of America, unfortunately, that until we unweave it and create something <laughs> new, we will continue to have these issues. They won't just go away because uh, time passing, you know, time is not going to, I tell this to people, uh, sometimes they say, well, time heals and it does, but time heals mm -hmm. based on what you do with that time. If you break your leg and then run on it every day, it doesn't matter how much time passes, your leg won't heal. But if you see right. a doctor and get a cast and, you know, take time off and rest on it, then time can heal. So we need to do the work for the time to be healing, but we haven't done enough of that yet. And that's why we are still in this situation that we find ourselves today mm -hmm. in America and why so many people are hurting and so many people are angry. And we wanted to talk today to make sure we continue the conversation. Yeah. And so we're getting close to a commercial break, but of course, we're just getting started and talking about um, this issue of race and racism in America. And we also want to make sure that we don't just start the conversation with words and end it with words, that we talk mm -hmm. about action and what people can do and how we hope people will get involved, uh, you and I included, of course, in this process of trying to bring about change in a positive way. So I'm joined today okay. by Professor Dr. Nushin Valizade. We're talking about race and racism in America. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined today by Dr. Nushin Valizade. We're talking about race and racism in America. Uh, and as I mentioned when I was bringing you on today, we had planned to have this discussion earlier mm -hmm. a few months ago not about of course what's happening today but just about race and racism in the united states and then it's become more pressing and more in the public eye right now and so maybe it's good for us to talk a bit about what's going on i'm sure people have heard Absolutely. many times and seen videos and pictures but about uh, what, what happened in minneapolis where george floyd was murdered by the police there. I know that's a strong word, but it's clear. And even uh, the officer has been charged with originally third degree murder, but this is kind of breaking news, something I don't do often because I don't get to really check it so carefully. But from what I'm seeing, they seem to be upgrading that charge from third degree to second degree murder. And mm -hmm. the other three officers are being um, uh, charged with aiding and abetting in the murder of George Floyd. And so this might be one small step 
towards justice. I'm sure people have mixed feelings about the severity of the charges, people probably wanting it to be more severe, but at least if arrests are made, that hopefully will be a first step in that direction. Absolutely. Um, we, we, so, have yeah, we, we have to see. We have to see. Yes, <laughs> exactly. We'll have to see what happens. We have to see what ends up happening. If they get convicted, they get sentenced, and all of that. But, you know, we are... Yes. There, this is a step. And really what's happened, everybody knows that we actually were able... We're horribly uh, put in the position where we were watching a man be murdered in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, it, and the scary thing is that those cops knew they were being recorded. So what happens when they're not being recorded? What are yeah. What's happening with, with all of the uh, people who aren't getting the hashtag? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's really going on? What is really being allowed? Because this man very comfortably did this in front of everybody while the man was also announcing that he couldn't breathe, that he needed help, he wanted his mother, which is heart-wrenching to hear. Hmm. And, um, and, the, and he did it in cold blood, just calmly and quietly, just continued to keep his knee on George Floyd's neck. And we saw that. And also, let's yeah. not forget Breonna Taylor, who police mm-hmm. had gone to her house accidentally 10 miles away from where they were supposed to be, and no knock, no warrant, barged into her home, and uh, she got shot eight times and died, and she was an EMT. And often the, the women who get killed, that's why I say her, the hashtag say her name is so important, is because um, many of us, we finally know some names, um, but the names are still of men, and we don't know how many women there have been who have been victims of police brutality, of hate crime. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's something that you know we're really seeing right now. What we're seeing is is that everybody... Some people are calling it, we witnessed a lynching, a man was lynched mm-hmm. today. I mean, how mm-hmm. different is this, us all yeah. viewing somebody get killed and assuming that the cops might end up getting away with this, and that's what we've seen, how different is that from a long time ago? Um, so a lot of people now think that racism has gotten worse, and it hasn't gotten worse. I believe, uh, I'm not sure who the celebrity was who said it, but said it's just gotten filmed now. Um, mm-hmm. which is a very, very real issue. And people are fed up, and they are angry, and they are upset at how much this has happened. So George Floyd is not something new. These concepts aren't mm-hmm. new. The day we met, like you said, one of the first things you said was, oh, I really would like to bring you on and talk about race and talk about racism. And I said, there's always something to talk about with those topics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter if I came on your show in person a few months ago. It doesn't matter if I come a few months from now. We're going to have these conversations because they mm-hmm. are very much a part of daily life and occurrence, um, especially for black and brown people in this country. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I mentioned that uh, the update on the arrests, and I don't know exactly the details. I briefly read it during the commercial break. But as you mentioned, we still, you know, it's still a wait and see because uh, unfortunately what African-Americans have experienced so many times is, first of all, often no charges at all, but then even maybe charges are made, but then they're found not guilty. And so uh, they have not felt, and rightfully so, that justice has been served in almost all of these cases. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're thinking about the trauma, and of course I can never literally put myself in someone's shoes or know what it's like to be someone else. But I can imagine African-Americans dealing with this. First, there's a trauma of seeing it themselves and or having loved ones go through these interactions with the police and different forms of racism. Then there's watching the videos of someone who they feel maybe looks more like them or a family member and the trauma that has. And then there's that added trauma of, okay, now you saw someone hurting someone 
there should be consequences, right? And then oftentimes right. there isn't. And so mm -hmm. that is an added trauma that they also, I think, experience of that justice not being served, that it does Absolutely. feel like uh, what happens to them doesn't matter. And we will talk and maybe even you can transition to it now mm -hmm. about this idea of Black Lives Matter yeah. and, uh, and yeah. what happens there. But it can get that feeling that our death, our life doesn't matter. And that's heartbreaking mm -hmm. and adds another layer, another complexity to the trauma that is experienced. Absolutely. And one thing and another additional trauma I'd love to and I love that you mentioned how much these images are triggering and traumatic, because honestly, even that part, even with people who want to side with Black Lives Matter, posting and reposting all videos and images of black people being killed by police, uh, would, 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 we, is it, would it be normal to see that imagery of white people dying, of white kids getting killed? I mean, is that something that is really um, going to help with the cause because you're posting it? Now, we saw it, and we know what happened, but we have to be really careful about how much we are putting people in trauma to actually watch a person getting killed, a human life getting killed. Mm -hmm. I know more about his death than I do about who he was. So I really have to like go and look in and see, and I find out, oh, wow, he was actually an amazing human being as well. He, they called him a gentle giant, and they, he, you know, was, everybody knew his name. He had had this great job for a few years. And not that you have to be, you know, have, be a good person or not to be deserving of life. That is absolutely right. not part of it. Everyone, we are all equal in human value. Mm -hmm. But knowing the human, preserving the humanity of those who were killed, he was more than the person who was murdered in this way. And I would love for him to also, um, for us to actually know more about the people, to see them as people. Something that you had mentioned with like love and human love, and and about um, with the book that you were talking about, really makes me think that are we actually as a society able to see black people as people and the truth is no they have been dehumanized from the beginning in this country to the point where even saying black lives matter makes people so uncomfortable i have sexual assault event i, I um, am on the advisory board for peace over violence and we do a lot of different events mainly we, we are focused on eliminating domestic and sexual assault um, but you know uh, there's so many other components because violence is violence and there's a lot of different mm -hmm. elements of violence that contribute to those factors even more. But when, I've never had an event that focused on domestic violence and then had people say, why aren't you talking about this other thing right. why, that has to do with it? Because, you know, or, or had a breast cancer awareness event take place and say, you know, why are you having a breast cancer awareness? We need to also have Crohn's disease awareness. Yes, we do. Right. These issues are important, but they haven't been, they're not the center right now. So those, those, that, those, um, efforts have been have have been taken, and there haven't there hasn't backlash for it. But because of Black Lives Matter, because it says Black, I believe that this is why people have such a discomfort. And it's 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 clear in every culture, even in our culture, saying Sifid Pus and saying Siapus gives people a different type of feeling. It just does. And mm -hmm. what is wrong with what is the problem? Um, so yeah, of course, Black Lives Matter actually was founded. Uh, in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murders. This is all stuff you can find on the website. One of the first things I do with my students say, before you have a lot of ideas and opinions about Black Lives Matter, have you ever gone on the website? So how much are our ideas informed by what we've seen on the media and what the irresponsible media, as Malcolm X put it, has uh, told us to believe? So I have my students go on the website, and they're so surprised. I always ask them, "Did you? were you surprised at what you learned? Did you... 
did this change your view of Black Lives Matter? And they almost always say yes. Even if at first they were like, what, what, why not all lives matter? Um, mm-hmm. They're able to kind of go on the website and learn more about it. It's really about, uh, it's, it's really the mission to remove, eradicate white supremacy and actually, you know, bring awareness and change to the violence that's inflicted in black communities. However, they also focus, they also uh, recognize the violence that has happened in other communities. When Bijan Reysad was killed by police, they had posted images of that and had uh, talked about that as well. So saying black lives matter is not and has never been to say that black lives matter more. The point of black lives matter is that all lives will matter when black lives matter. But all lives can't matter when black lives don't. So perhaps some have said, oh, they should say black lives matter too. Um, You know, don't don't tell communities what they should and shouldn't have done. This started as a hashtag and it went viral for a reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's uh, important. I've mentioned this maybe several times, including last week, because this does come up a lot. Even I I had a post and then someone did write, uh, don't all lives matter or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, you know, this is why it's so important. As you mentioned, you were getting into the history of it and how it came about, because that's so important. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, if Black Lives Matter was never a thing as far as like a hashtag and a movement and someone came up to you and said, don't you think all lives matter? You'd be like, great. Yeah, of course. I'm totally with that. But when you look at the historical context, and I know it's short-term history, but still the context of how things developed, we see that Black Lives Matter was a movement, as you mentioned, that came about because there was this experience that black lives didn't seem to matter as much as other lives. That when black lives were lost, there was no response in the way we would expect for other lives. So saying we'd like for black lives to also matter, please make our lives matter. And so when you say that as a cry for justice, and then someone else comes in and says, but all lives matter, it's actually undermining what you are saying about black lives matter. It's not trying to include you. So it's like, you know, you've seen, I've seen a lot of posts on this, which I think are interesting, or I was thinking about this. If someone, let's say in Iran before there was, uh, even in America, of course, there wasn't always rights for women to vote. But if someone said women should be able to vote, and then if someone came back and said, everyone should be able to vote, and you'd be like, yeah, I get that. That's my point is that women have not yeah. been allowed to vote. We need to fight for them to be able to vote so that everyone can mm-hmm. vote. So uh, we have to be aware because yeah. it's a very deceptive type of a thing uh, to hear that it all is. lives matter because it sounds so good. Again, on its surface, I don't think anyone is against the mattering of all lives or for all lives having significance. But when you recognize it's to undermine another movement, which is trying to bring about rights for the black community, that's where and it, it has really become is troublesome. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, has, and it has now purposely been weaponized. Perhaps in the beginning it was confusing and people, mm-hmm. I, people very close to me were like, but all lives matter. And then when they recognized, okay, yeah, that's not what it means. It means this. And it was a neural concept. That was one thing. And perhaps that's where people are at. And they're like really needing to understand how you know, what, what, why that distinguished, why that has been distinguished, even, and, and people using their platforms, I just love that, especially when they do have a lot of followers who might have these other viewpoints, so even Billie Eilish has written something very um, cute about it, who said, uh, if your arm was bleeding and you need a Band-Aid, do we have to actually give Band-Aids to everyone at that moment, mm-hmm. because all arms matter, like, yes, all arms do matter, but this arm's the one bleeding that needs that centralized moment. And that is what the whole purpose of this is. Now, the issue with language is that it is one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful psychological tool that can um, control us in a way. So, and we can do that Mm -hmm. in positive, and we can also do it in destructive ways. 
So now All Lives Matter, which was originally a, a question perhaps, has now actually changed. Now saying All Lives Matter means that you are part of a group of people who probably deny and are also amongst those who are viciously yelling all lives matter. White supremacist groups viciously yell all lives matter. It's meant something else. They're not saying black lives matter too. All lives matter. That is not what they're saying. They're mm -hmm. saying things like, well, he was actually a thug. Well, he actually was selling yeah. fake cigarettes. He had a, he, you know, the police have a hard job and they, they, you didn't see this whole story. You know, those are their arguments and that is a trauma we didn't talk about. That is additional trauma that black people and people of color have to sit here and watch happening. Um, but, but specifically black people right now sitting there and having to see people's responses and justification for these heinous acts are saying, oh, there's just a few apples that all cops aren't doing this. And, and completely, and that is true that all cops aren't doing this, but you mm -hmm. can't afford to have a few bad apples in this type of a field. And you cannot just, even if, these cops get charged okay great how they're just part of the system if you're not actually going to pull the roots out of that system then that rotten tree will still give you rotten fruit so mm -hmm. you get rid of those fruits okay we threw those out what do you expect to happen in another few months and that's exactly. a lot that's also a mission of black lives matter too and what's why these protests are happening the protests are not about oh we have to get those cops charged okay they're charged and everybody can go home no it's, mm -hmm. We have to do something about the system. They are just pawns in this larger game. Yeah, I, I think um, the murder of George Floyd seemed to be in some ways a catalyst for some of the protests and what mm -hmm. we're seeing. But like you're saying, it doesn't begin and end with George Floyd. We, of course, hope for there mm -hmm. to be justice because there should be justice. Hopefully we'll give some peace to his family and also to the African-American community and the American community at large. But it won't begin right. and end with him because it was happening uh, before and I, I saw today the lawyer for the the Floyd family and he was naming different people who have been killed at the hand of the police officers over the Absolutely. recent years and as you mentioned this is not the name of all the people because most of the time it doesn't go viral we don't hear about it uh, I was talking to someone the other day about this if there was no video of George Floyd or maybe when we talked we had I can't remember we talked over the weekend but if George yeah, Floyd's vid, uh, you know encounter with the police and then murder was not on video camera we would have never heard mm -hmm. his name or known what happened. It probably would have just been, you know, some guy has an altercation with the police and then he, he dies. And we would somehow mm -hmm. think he probably, it was justified or was okay. And more than likely the police report would somehow make it seem that it was very much justified and nothing would have happened. So George Floyd, of course, is a tragic case. It's painful. I can still, you know, I saw the video and as you mentioned, the things he said and experienced and seeing what he went through was horrific. Absolutely. But it's also a reminder that so many others have suffered uh, without the benefit of being seen. And those unseen mm -hmm. pains and traumas are also what we're talking about and fighting for. So when people think the protest yeah. is just about George Floyd, of course it is about George Floyd, but it's about how George Floyd is part of the experience of African-Americans in this community, in this country, who've gone through so Absolutely. much. So it's not just about George Floyd. And as you mentioned, I don't think the protests are going to stop uh, if there's even convictions and jail time and no. justice is quote unquote served in this instance, there's still so much mm -hmm. more work to do. And I hope that people uh, will recognize that and I, that the fight will continue until we do achieve equality and true justice in this country. And we have a long, long ways to go. Um, a long well, way to go. I, and to, and I, I, I want to also point one more thing out, that even in the Black Lives Matter 
community, they even understand centralizing voices within their own uh, mission. So, for example, and by the way, today I believe was Brianna Taylor's birthday, and she would have been um, either, I think she would have been 27 today, and that's just a very, very young birthday to miss, um, and, and it's tragic. But uh, so with the hashtag Say Her Name, oh, some people might have said during George Floyd or other murders, Say His Name. And there have been specific instances where it has been corrected. This Say Her Name is a specific movement for uh, women who have been killed by hate mm-hmm. crimes or by police. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's not now saying, oh, now the men who have been killed don't matter anymore. It's, that it's saying exactly. the women haven't been spoken, so this is something for them. This is where they're centralized. So we're just keeping Say Her Name or Say Their Name um, for uh, trans, pe- trans people who are also... Uh, harmed by police and by civilians. Um, so yeah. even within that, their organization, they have done that sort of kind of taking a moment to centralize certain voices for certain causes and acknowledging that it's not going to completely dismiss other groups. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just had to add that part because, yeah. um, and also because people don't realize and they do say like hashtag say his name without realizing like say her name's one thing, Black Lives Matter for everything. Black trans mat- lives matter is is also a thing, um, and you know we're we're gonna we it's it's when I go to colleges and I and I do uh, I do hate conversation hate 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 conversation discussions things like that and and the deans say okay we're gonna have a no hate tolerance we're gonna have um, we're gonna call this act that took place at our college where someone wrote the n word all over a dorm we're gonna say we don't support hate and I say no you have to call it for what it is just saying hate brushes out. A lot of the other, mm-hmm. it's very convenient. And and who actually matters? Because they're very quick to say something is anti-Semitic, and they should. But they can say anti-Semitic, but they can't say it's racist. They can't say it's sexist. They can't say it's homophobic. They can't say it's Islamophobic. All of a sudden, all those things are under some big hate umbrella. And that, again, shows who's, which students matter. Mm-hmm. And I think it also points to they, you know, institutions might not want to acknowledge that racism lives here, you know, that racism is yeah. at their school and part of their school. And uh, mm-hmm. I think we do have to come to terms and have that humility that racism, as I was mentioning before, is woven into the fabric of this country. And so it's everywhere. Yeah. And so we have to acknowledge that you can't get rid of uh, a problem until you face it. Actually, that reminds me, we're about to go to commercial break, but I didn't plan yeah. on saying this. I'm finding the quote, but it's from James Baldwin. And I think it's such a beautiful quote. It says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing mm-hmm. can be changed until it is faced. And so that's yeah. something I think is so relevant when it comes to racism. Of course, you probably wrote that, I don't know how long, 50 years ago, but it's still there. Until we face racism head on, meaning that we acknowledge it, it is ugly and it really is ugly. So imagine what it must feel like to experience that ugliness. Until we face it, we won't be able to overcome it. And so we're going to continue yeah, this conversation on race and racism. I'm joined by Professor Dr. Nushin Valizadeh. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I am joined today by my guest, Dr. Nushin Valizadeh. We're talking about race and racism in America. And, uh, you know, I wanted to add something to what you shared about George Floyd and how you've seen this image of his death, but you actually don't know much about his life, as is the case for many of us, and we can look into it. But also on this unfortunate 
point that always happens in these cases is where uh, the, you know the footage will come out or we'll hear about it and then there will be an attack on the person's character that was killed mm-hmm. it's happened every time uh, from Trayvon Martin you know even a, who was a, essentially a child to everyone else that you see and, and I think it's heartbreaking to see that uh, every life is worth value first of all as you said but it's very mm-hmm. sad that that's the narrative and where people go because to me what happened to George Floyd um, whether he, let's say, was a whatever you want to call a quote-unquote good or bad man is in some ways irrelevant because he was killed and that was not okay no matter what. And so when the conversation, it almost becomes in was his life worth, uh, worth it that we should be worried about it or sad about it? And I think that itself exactly. is a bad place for us to go and very unfortunate. No one should be killed just for that's point blank that's it we can't even worry about if he was an incredible man or a pretty good man or not so great man i see people posting various things about his past or this or that some of it of course untrue but even if it's true that's not where we want to get caught up in this discussion all of us have made mistakes in our own lives no matter who we are whether or not we got caught by the police or not is a different story but unethical things immoral things that's part of being human is that we're not perfect and so if we start getting into valuing even that's kind of in an indirect way when we talk about black lives matter as we were talking about previously is that it's to make sure all lives do matter in the sense that we're mentioning the lives that have been missed that are not given enough importance so I think we have to be careful about that. And I hope people won't get sucked into that narrative in those conversations about trying to determine um, how upset we should be about his death. What was done to him was it murder, as you said, is a, a lynching in broad daylight. And that's unacceptable. We, we don't need to, we can try to understand him better, as you said, to humanize him as we should humanize all people because a big source of racism uh, that we see in any type of prejudice is related to not humanizing that quote unquote other. But to get caught in was his, who was he and was it worth enough? That to me is horrible. And we shouldn't even open up that type of a discussion because that's not relevant when we're talking about someone unjustly being killed. Absolutely. And I think that something that is so critical to understand is, again, a lot of why I teach history in any uh, course that I'm going to teach is because if you don't really understand the past and you don't understand the roots, then you can't mm-hmm. see when history is repeating itself and you can't see the patterns and you can't say, oh, okay, this is similar to X, Y, and Z. So in the beginning, um, black people or African people who were brought here and even ones who were indigenous, they had them standing handcuffed next to people who they couldn't speak the same language with. So they had already stripped them of being able to actually communicate with one another by having people from different tribes next to each other. Um, And so so they stripped language from them. They stripped uh, masculinity from them in a lot of gruesome ways as well. They, they, uh, pillaged people, their children right in front of them. So there was so much dehumanization that happened then. And mm-hmm. so now today, we also see, and that, and, and much of that, quote-unquote, had to happen so that they could comfortably do the things that had, to be, that, had to be, that had to take place. Because for this country to have allowed so much horrid, so many hard acts, and to actually realize that those hard acts were happening to a person equal in your human value would not have worked. So they had to strip their human, their humanity to justify the actions yeah. that, that were taking place. 
And to this day, we see that. They need to justify mass incarceration. They need to justify the fact that that people need to be taken to jail, even if they're kids, pulled out of the classroom by their hair for not listening. They need to justify the fact that these uh, girls are bad, black girls are bad, black boys are thugs. Even that word thug, which here's Mm -hmm. another thing. I've had conversations with people um, who want to continue using the word thug, even to the point of sending a a description of, what Merriam-Webster's definition of a thug is and that it has nothing to do with race. And then you know what I did? It was send them a description of what the Merriam-Webster definition of the discriminatory term for gay people that begins with an F, which also doesn't say it has anything to do with being gay. But the Mm -hmm. point is that these words have been used. They were just words. Words are just words, right? But they have been used in a way to perpetuate stereotypes, to continuously dehumanize, to tell us that this was deserving. So, okay, they couldn't find much on George Floyd. They couldn't, uh, uh, other than there was a counterfeit $20, and was, did he know, did he not know? Um, But, you know, Philando Castile comes out that he was actually a great... uh, guy who works in the cafeteria knew all the kids' mm-hmm. allergies, mm-hmm. but he said he had a gun and the cop got confused. Right? There's so much justification still for taking away a human life. Yet when Dylan Roof, that white guy who had killed nine uh, black people at a church, he was given, oh, when they couldn't say that he had a disability, because usually they do that too. With white people, they'll say, oh, they had mental health, they had autism. So they start now demeaning people with disabilities, and that's a huge other component, um, dehumanizing anyone who has disabilities, regardless of their race. Um, but then they were like, well, you know, he just got caught up in a bad situation. Was there abuse at home? This happened. There was so much justification, not for what he did, but there was forgiveness. And, and even the way the media showed his face, they showed his face, or like you know, people like Brock Turner, they show them, they don't show them in a mugshot form. They don't show them as animals, but they do present very differently with people who are actually black or even mm-hmm. in the Latinx populations as well. And that language Absolutely. that gets used by our, by our leader, President Trump, that language that ke- keeps getting used, um, whether or not you side with him, that, that, makes the, that influences your mind. It, it starts becoming part of your vocabulary. It starts mm-hmm. becoming part of something that is subconsciously said when you see somebody who fits those descriptions. Yeah, and I think you know, that word was in those tweets and about when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And so yeah, maybe we can mm-hmm. shift a bit to um, the protests that have been happening, which unfortunately gets so intertwined with the the looting and the rioting and then people lump it all together as one thing uh and and these are complicated issues because of course the people are angry you know and as martin luther king says the riot is the rhyme of the unheard or the song of the unheard when people don't get their voice heard they can resort to um expressing that anger and rage in different ways it's it's actually understandable Absolutely. i'm not saying i justify someone getting killed in the process of this or damaging people or rights or property or whatever it is but these things are very complicated and to just you know get focused on damaged property or stolen things i'm not saying that's good and i'm condoning or promoting that but i think we're losing sight of the bigger picture which is that the the protests most of which has been peaceful i should also mention i went to a protest on saturday and i of course was peaceful and i wanted to be a part of that make sure my voice was heard my presence was felt i think it's the least i could do but you know and i saw people that were 
overwhelmingly they were angry, but very peacefully protesting and expressing that anger. And they were there. Mm -hmm. I did see also people that uh, as I was walking back home, that it seemed they were there to be opportunistic. They had even these tools to break windows. And and I saw them getting ready. You could tell to, you know, as I was walking back, things were heating up, probably waiting till it got to the point where that could be more appropriate. And so there's so much going on that we, if we try to paint it all with one broad brush of, oh, see, look what the protesters are doing. It even undermines what they're fighting for. You know, people will say things like, how is this about George Floyd and all these types of things. We can get lost in all this, uh, the convolutions of what's going on. And so I think it's important to differentiate that people are protesting injustice and the overwhelming majority are doing it in ways that are not harmful to others. And there are some that are not even part of the movement that are taking part, not because they're angry, but being opportunistic and trying to either create chaos or steal or whatever they're trying to do. But to to lump them all into one group, as we're mentioning in any group, it's always going to be much more complex. But I think it's really sad to see that happening because it's unfortunately allowing people to try to obfuscate the actual movement, which is that people are upset because of the injustices that have been a part of this country since its beginning. Absolutely, but I have to say that it's this looting that uh, it's, it's a mix of people. So there's some mm-hmm. people who are, um, and we don't really know what's going on. We don't know if it's really an anarchist organization or a different organization pretending they're being anarchists. We don't know if these are just poor people. We don't know if some have mm-hmm. actually been white people, so we don't know if they're part of a supremacist org or if it's Antifa or it's anarchy. We don't really know. Um, right. Or if they're people from the right wing trying to deter this conversation. Uh, we don't know who the people are, um, or people you know from the left wing who want to create some other sort of uproar and, and create a conspiracy. I mean, we just really don't know. But the problem is that, again, pointing to lumping people and being in a race is that if this looting was taking place after the Women's March, after the March for Lives, after marches that were about uh, causes that affect everyone but that had a very large um, white following, then these instances would clearly be separated, that it would be very much a, look, these thugs are opportunists, and they're coming out of the woodworks, and they're doing this, and they're doing that, and they're trying to ruin things. And it wouldn't be a question and, uh, and confusion of, uh, you know, oh, we shouldn't be having these women protests, or we shouldn't be having this march for lives against gun violence, because um, they're also the same people are bringing these other people out. No, that wouldn't be a discussion. Right. They would be able to differentiate, but because we're seeing a lot of black people in one place it automatically convolutes that to the point where people are very uncomfortable with even saying Black Lives Matter on social media because they think mm-hmm. they're saying they're promoting what's going on right now with businesses and uh, communities getting broken into, um, which, you know, it's just so disturbing to me. These are separate instances. This is not yeah. all one group of people. You have peaceful protesters. You have angry protesters who are lighting up cop props cop cars and maybe police stations and things like in corporate establishments that are gentrifying their communities perhaps on fire and you and that's one group and whether or not you condone that it i think it's fair to say that we can understand the anger that's there um mm-hmm. and not have to support it but understand why there's a lot of anger and why people are expressing themselves differently and i don't think that saying that we can understand that anger is condoning if somebody hurt my child and i wanted to kill them I think people would really understand that. Would they support mm-hmm. me doing that? No, but they would understand that. So that's right. what that statement means. Um, and of course, I do support the peaceful protesters as well. 
Though we have seen a lot of peaceful protests over time, and it hasn't done anything. So we'll see what happens. But these looters, are they actually parts of different organizations? Are they actually making a statement themselves? Are they saying, hey, by the way, we've been quarantined, we've lost jobs, we're poor as hell, our kids can't eat, uh, they have to actually like keep schools open with lines outside um, to put us further at risk for, for COVID just to eat because children start, die of hunger in this mm. country. And now there's an opportunity for us to come out there. And we don't really care about this movement of Black Lives Matter because, let's face it, so many educated and well-off black people are also part of that movement who perhaps maybe they can't relate to and they don't actually see this country going anywhere. Um, yeah, maybe that's a part, That maybe that is its own statement that's taking place. It's a little bit of a separate issue, but it isn't separate from noticing how the inequalities and how there's so many ways that black people specifically have been oppressed um, by the, by different systems. So we can't yeah, necessarily yeah. lump these groups at all together, but it's interesting that so many different causes might be actually taking place right now. Right. Yeah. These are, it's you know to lump it all into one thing or to associate it all with the movement, so to speak, or whatever it is, is really unfortunate. I think some people would like that to become the narrative because then it takes away from the message yeah. by making it seem like it's this negative thing that's just trying to hurt people or damage people. And then using words like thugs, of course, is not uh, an a racial statement. It definitely has racial connotations there. You know, I want to say one last thing before we go to break. Also, you know, you mentioned yeah, understanding the anger. And when people express something, even as an individual, if you feel you are not heard and you are upset and then you express it again and you're not heard, you're going to get yeah. more angry. You're going to get louder. Even when I work with families, you know, they might say, oh, my kid, you know, he yells so much at me. And of course, that anger is usually longstanding. And also, it probably means you're not listening to him when he does try to express yeah. what's going on. And so he's getting more extreme in how he's expressing that because he's not being mm -hmm. heard. And so it's not to connect, you know, the experiences of one individual teenager to what's happening to the African-Americans in the United States, but it's a, a commentary on the ways that when we don't listen to people's hurt and anger, it doesn't disappear Absolutely. and it's going to come out in different ways. And so we have to ask ourselves if people are so angry, why are we not listening to them? There's a reason yeah. for it. You and might not even agree, as you said, with how they express that anger or what they're planning to do with it, but you can understand the anger and we have to f listen to the anger, where it's coming from, recognize how justified it is, and then address what they're angry about. Of course, listening is not going to be enough. If we truly listen, we must take action. Um, let's go to another Absolutely. commercial break. Again, I'm joined mm -hmm. by Professor Dr. Nushin Valizada. We're talking about race and racism in the United States. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Again, I'm joined today by Professor Dr. Nusheen Valizadeh, and we're talking about race and racism in America. And so we're talking about it, which I think is very important, and one component of doing something about it is, is to talk about these issues and to not stop talking about them. But also, we wanted to make sure we discuss what people can do more than just talk about it, because that is not going to be enough conversations themselves are not going to bring about change and bring about justice completely. Uh, and actually, I, something we both saw online, um, actually ISG at UCLA just shared it, a bunch of other groups have shared it as well. But it was uh, something that was developed, it's about eight or nine kind of slides or pictures, uh, Iranians for Black Lives, a guide for mm -hmm. dismantling anti-blackness in the Iranian-American community. And so I will likely share this um, to my 
Instagram later today too, so people can check that out or you can find it online yourself. But so I wanted to, to open up that discussion with you. Um, so of course, we all need to be involved and it's not only for Iranians, but the majority of the listeners are Iranian. And so wanted to get your thoughts and we can get into this a little bit more deeply about Iranians, what role we've played in what's going on and also what we can do to address what's going on. Absolutely. And I love seeing that. I love ISD. Um, I've been able to work with them and, and they're just so great um, mm-hmm. on, on really uh, not wait, holding back and waiting to say things. So I thought what they posted was fantastic. Um, really critical components of what they shared was actually recognizing anti-blackness and colorism within our own communities um, and also validating that we do have black people in our communities, whether they're mixed race, Iranian, black, um, or actually in being inclusive of the Afro-Iranians who are in Iran and have been for a long time. Um, another component there is also, uh, which I think this is something that people don't really recognize, is how the uh, model minority myth has actually been, uh, that, that Iranians have been um, part of, has been a tool. So we've mm-hmm. actually profited from this model minority myth in certain ways, um, like many other non-black immigrant communities, and we've actually been used by our country to perpetuate racist stripes. So if they, if as long as our country is able to say, look, look at these Iranian people, look at these Asian people, look how great they're doing, um, and to further reinforce why black people or Latinx community members haven't uh, done the same, then they're completely dismissing, they're able to dismiss the structural barriers, the many factors that uh, have contributed to why people are where at their at as a group, um, institutional racism, the systemic distribution of resources and power and opportunity, the huge gaps between rich and poor, the fact that uh, good, um, hardworking black people with who had great incomes and great credit were not even allowed to live in the communities that later appreciated, and they weren't able to have their kids go to those schools that were getting um, the right funding. So these are not just concepts of the past. These result today. To this day, my daughter's public elementary school is much, much better uh, in terms of rankings and resources than the school just a few blocks away or a couple miles away. So we're seeing that even as a four or five-year-old, they're already um, having educational inequities, uh, health inequities. So so these are, these are really critical components that Iranians have to be able to understand. Um, there are a lot of Iranians who want to do this work. I was just able to meet with some great Iranian uh, people from all over the country who care about this. Um, we're, we're still kind of figuring out if we're going to be a group that has a specific um, focus on, uh, in our title, to have the focus on black lives, to say maybe Iranians for black lives. Or right now, it's strike the match. We're just figuring out what the group actually is and who's going to play a role and in what way. But for anyone who's interested, um, there is a group of people who are like-minded who are Iranian, and they really make it a point to say Iranian and not just Persian, because to include the many other groups within our own communities, like Kurds and Azadis. Um, so we're really, uh, and that was something I learned too, because I, I use Persian and inter- Iranian interchangeably often, and I'm not mm-hmm. recognizing that the, there's a form of elitism that that um, is contributed to that as well. So uh, the email is strike the match for black lives at gmail.com. Um, that's a really great way to just kind of see if you want to get started in the conversation. But we talked about a lot of different things we can do as Iranian Americans, signing petitions. Um, Color for Change has great position, petitions that you can sign and be involved with and 
share and spread the word. Obviously, there's social media work you can do. You can actually, aside from educating ourselves, you can also um, support black creators and business uh, and, and business or owners. Um, and then also some funding. So uh, being able to donate, even if it's a little bit, it just show, it just goes a long way. So what we actually did was in the middle of our break, we had an optional call for action where we all donated to a cause, whether it was Black Lives Matter, um, there's an official George Floyd Memorial Fund. We all did a donation. And something that's so interesting is that some of the donations are through Venmo. And we can't even have a solidarity together and say, we're going to all Venmo Iranians for Black Lives because guess what? Iran, an Iranian will get flagged. So even mm-hmm. that itself is a statement right there yeah. of how, while our struggles are not the same, we have also not had those same people who have elevated, who have used the model minority myth as a tool to elevate us, haven't completely had their had our back. We didn't see um, a, a lot of support when Bijan Faisal was killed. We haven't seen a lot of uprising for what's happening in Iran and how many Iranian Americans have families in those countries. Um, and how many, you know, Iranian students there didn't have access to the Internet who may want to apply to college and things like that during that same time. We didn't see a lot of, of voice uh, noise about that. So, again, even we as Iranian Americans who might try and think that we have actually pulled ourselves out of these traps and, and followed the myth of meritocracy haven't been treated and navigated our lives the way everyone else uh, in, in a you know, white, Christian, able-bodied community has. Right. Yeah, I think uh, when you're talking, um, there's so many great points there that I hope people really take in. And it re- reminded me of the book, which I highly recommend, uh, The Limits of Whiteness by Neda Maghbula, which uh, can give you some good insights into the experience and the history of Iranians and race and whiteness when it, when it comes to America. And, and as you mentioned, yeah. we too often, I mentioned this last week on my show, um, as Iranians have tried to be white and tried to pass as white or take yeah. on those benefits and those privileges. And I think, unfortunately, to do that, we've also alienated and contributed to the injustices that happen when it comes to race in this country. And we have to take a hard look in the mirror when it comes to these issues. And uh, all of us have contributed in some way, or if we haven't just contributed, as we were talking about before, we haven't done enough to make things better. And so I hope we will take this seriously. And then we think of the injustices when you think of people suffering in our own country of Iran in different ways at the hands of the government. And you might think of, well, then look at what's happening here. And so we have to use that pain from that injustice that you may be experienced in your own way and to think about others who are suffering as well. So I hope people will, will take a look at this. Um, I'm going to post this um, uh, you know, you mentioned actually a lot of the topics that they cover here and recognizing mm-hmm. that we can do a lot more and we have to be aware of and take a hard look at, yeah, you know what, we've benefited from some of these things that have held black people down and we have to acknowledge it. And you mentioned the myth of meritocracy and we'd like to think that anything we have is just because we've worked harder and smarter and better or whatever it is, but we know that that's not true. You shared about education. It's so heartbreaking to see the disparity in schools, just starting in public schools that that kids will go go into based on their income level and the neighborhood that they live in and have access to. And then we see how much even higher education is affected by 
um, and your likelihood of going into higher education is affected by your income level and your family's income level. So we, we'd like to think we have this level playing field and this myth of the American dream being open to everyone equally is definitely not true. And sometimes Iranians can get locked into that because they want to think, well, if I'm successful, it was all me. And if someone else is not successful, it's because they uh, kind of deserve it or they haven't deserved better. And so we need to do better. And so I hope, you know, Absolutely. we'll take a look at, at these kinds of things and recognize that, as I said, we want to keep the conversation alive. And even that's one of the things we need to keep doing is to have these conversations mm -hmm. as uncomfortable as they can be. You don't need to have all the answers to have the conversations. It's just about continuing the discourse, but it's not going to end just with words. We're going to have to take action. And so you, you suggested some things that we can do and be aware of. And this also um, here, we can look at more resources online. You know, I'm looking at the time. We're at a commercial break. Mm -hmm. I do want after the break, um, you know, we, I mentioned that you have a book of poetry that will be coming out soon. And some of it relates oh. to these intersections of uh, Iran, police brutality, what's happening now. And I think that could be very important to share because our words as far as discussion is important but there's a way that art could sometimes cut through and get to the heart of the matter in a different way so after the break uh, i'll have dr nushin valizada share some of her own poetry and we'll, we'll talk about the work she does with students and using art uh, to discuss these issues you're listening to in session with dr fatty delaqui we'll be right back Welcome back again, my guest today, Dr. Nushin Valizadeh. And before the break, I mentioned how Dr. Valizadeh herself uh, writes um, poetry and has a book of poetry coming out soon called Women, W-O-M-X-N, uh, and that she also uses art in her work with her students. And so actually, I want to um, transition into that with, with you, if you're okay with sharing a poem with us from your work, um, and then we could transition to the role of art in the work that you do and how you can think it could be helpful. Absolutely. Thank you. It's an honor. It's always a little um, scary and vulnerable to share art. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'd love to share about how um, art is, plays a role. Uh, I consider, I've been considered to be an artivist, which is basically mm -hmm. an activist who promotes social change and awareness through the arts. And I've tended to do that through my poetry, but I've collaborated with many amazing other artists who do, um, who actually are painters, who are dancers, musicians, things like that, to, uh, to, to really put these feelings into words. And it not only can help people who connect with these issues um, and who love poetry, but it also has inspired others to write their own poetry as well. Um, and so I'm really, one thing I do with my courses is really incorporate uh, a creative element and offering um, credits to students who are able to find poetry out there by, written by other people that connect to our materials or create their own. So this poem that I'm going to share, it's called Bullet. I wrote it in my freshman year of college. Um, a whole other story that we'll have to get into sometime, but I've only been to Iran once and it was for two weeks and it was during the student protest of 1999 and my uncle, who's a very prominent political um, freedom fighter, was taken to prison during that time. Mm. Um, and so I was devastated. And when I came back, um, I didn't want to leave Iran, and I felt like I was home by being there. But then I had so many people saying, you get to go to this free country. Then I come home to America, and I mm. start college, and I see friends of mine who were black um, being harassed and brutalized by police. And I just was wondering, you know, who's really free? What is a free country? Um, and I felt like, you know, this kind of bridges what made me as an Iranian 
who went to uh, Iran even just for a short time and was able to kind of see what goes on here to fight against injustice as a whole. And social justice work is all of our work. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay, it's called Bullet. I wrote it Bullet. I called it Bullet because I wrote it fast and it came at me like a bullet and uh, on a train um, on these Dunkin' Donuts napkins. So, um, so this is written when I was in college, but the end of it I added a stanza after becoming a mother. All so right. slight shift. All right. I admit as a kid I've been afraid to sleep. Why? Can't I help seeing red when I shut my eyes? My world's a big flood of bloody cries and tears. How many more years of shrieks nobody hears in their nine-to-nine careers? Because lately it appears that we're just trying to get to the next day, and yet death will be on its way before we know it. And we've always blown it, make fatal mistakes and throw it behind us back into time where we can't rewind because we're all so blind to what is real, what we cannot heal, what we don't want to feel. But whose freedom's real and who needs logic to get that I didn't need to grow up in a village to fret and question my own home in this dome that I call alone, the only place I have ever known. And I've heard and endured the worst mental suffering with the best upbringing and it's not a simple thing and no type of blessing. My walls keep compressing because priests are molesting, 12-year-olds are sex. Cops stay arresting, beating, oppressing, the whole world's been wrestling their fears. And dear Ma Daddy, you're always the best thing. But it's hard when you're lamenting for your own sisters resting in peace after shot by police. Please, that's what we'd like to believe just so we can leave and achieve without grieving. But sometimes I want to stop breathing. Some days I pray that I'm dreaming, that my people aren't really screaming for their lives to be free, what we might never see. And as a kid, I did think there was hope with me. My brain has changed so drastically, like the United States economy, while my own motherland's hypocrisy swallows souls with a cup of chai, the word we use for tea. And you ask, what does this all mean to me? Imagine being only 18, and freedom is seen as just a dream. Every hope has been bombed one by one since Persia became corrupt Iran. Happiness sounds awkward and wrong, like it's someplace no brown face can ever belong. And this free nation is nothing but an oxymoron. But lately, I've been hopeful again. I see my girl's big eyes, her soul pure within, and then there's a chance she could even be president with love holding precedence over judgment on gender and skin. And though humanity set the evil example when Cain kills Abel, she's able to disable labels and bring about change. Because while on the outside we range, we all bleed the same. Yes, we all do bleed the same. Mm. That's that. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know you said it can be vulnerable to share art always, but it's because you're sharing something so deep with us that you've experienced, and I'm sure a lot of people could relate to that. I'll also share that I um, I read your poems that you sent to me, and they were beautiful, but the way you expressed it definitely has a much different element to it than just reading them, and so that, that was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of uh, performance poetry in there. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, and that's that's uh, there's so many various types of art, of course, and that that is one that the performance piece of it is it adds to um, what's being shared, or I can say creates the feelings that that you know one might experience listening to you. And so, before I get to the work you do with your students, when can people expect your book of poetry? So the book is in production. I have the layout. I have the designer. And I was so blessed to be able to get a publisher, World Stage Press. It was because I was selected as a performer at the Pan-African Film Festival um, to perform a 
uh, poem about police brutality there that is definitely one that we'll have to do in a physical sense. But um, I, uh, I think that it's going to take a few more months for production mm-hmm. to be complete. But the book is pretty much there. It still just needs some editing, and I've never done this before. Um, but I do have a lot of poetry in there about Iran and other poetry such as this about police brutality and also um, being a woman, and which is a lot of things, which is what the X is for, to be inclusive mm-hmm. of not just... Um, all the different identities and ethnicities that we can be to also be inclusive of trans folks um, and because we're not just one thing and uh, the image that's going to be in the book um, there's an image of a painting that was done by another by a survivor who I met through my um, activist work who uh, it's a picture of a woman with a lot of different colors on her face that are kind of broken off so the woman can be anyone but also invisible at the same time and um, I've been able to perform at UCLA at USC at really big events uh, so, and what they're always saying is, can you have a book? Do you have a way for me to see your poetry? And I never really thought about it until I got asked enough that I said, you know what? I need to actually put this out there. If I'm too shy to like share my poetry online enough, maybe I should just complete a book and, um, and let people know that there's something out there that people can connect with. My Persian students, especially, uh, sorry, I keep saying Persian and interchangeably, so that I'm still learning that part. My Iranian students, are um, especially really into the artistic aspect. It's so much of our culture, and yet for some reason often deterred and uh, not seen as something that we should really put our energy into, but it really saves lives. Art and artivism and and poetry and and painting and and dance has saved people's lives during the darkest times, Um, and it's definitely done that for me, and I've seen it do, do that for many people, especially in our community. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it saves lives both in just for the person expressing and the catharsis and the experience they can have, but also to really share a message and get the feeling of it across. Because just sometimes when we share facts and statistics, those of course have an impact, but art can cut through and penetrate to the heart and share that emotion with another person to really feel more the experience or what is going on and can leave a much more lasting impact than just uh, the words themselves. So I hope people will check out your poetry. And also I'll mention uh, they can find you on Instagram at Dr. Noosh underscore V, D-R-N-O-O-S-H underscore V. So that's on Instagram. And so look out for mm-hmm. her book uh, and keep me posted on that as well. Um, and I know, you know, we have a few minutes left and you, you mentioned that you do art with your students as well to help them express mm-hmm. um, their experiences and their perspective on what's going on to convey that message. And I think that's wonderful. Okay. If you want to maybe share a bit about that before we wrap things up. Yes. Yeah, so I definitely, uh, the important aspect of, of art has been as a form of expression and putting, I think my Angela said that um, poetry is actually putting music to words, something like that, uh, oh. that I'm paraphrasing. But um, uh, yes, because, you know, we have to be recognizing that the, these issues are the issues of us and of our children. And I'm working with, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm still on the fairly younger side for someone who's professor, but a lot of my students are 19 years old, 20, 21 years old. They have friends from a lot of different communities. They have, you know, maybe significant others. They, they, some of them are half um, Persian and half uh, Iranian, uh, sorry, and something else. And they, uh, they have anxieties. They have depression, just like many people in our country. And they need to have a way of expressing this. Often, they're also pushed into fields that they don't want to be in. Um, engineering or law school, maybe it's something that is not their own dream. And so what is their outlet? 
what is it can't just be studying in the books. I need to have some sort of an outlet. So I've had an Instagram um, for my students that is specifically for my students where they can post on the course without using their personal IDs. They can post their own art or other art um, and relate it to materials that we've read. So, for example, the book that you read, there, there's so much art out there that someone could you know, mm-hmm. be con- connect with that book. And, they, and that just adds another element or lyrics to song. Um, and and to be to be Iranian and to have another language where you can also express that is so beautiful. I'm also trying to work on perfecting uh, the poetry I write in Farsi. Um, and one other thing I want to also say is for everyone to know that social justice work and this type of work is not limited to people who are educators and who work in social justice. You want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, all of those fields are perfectly fine, and you can incorporate this into the work. You can pick up cases that are unjust. And, and fight those cases. If we had DAs who are fighting and picking up cases, no matter how politically inconvenient they are, that were against the, the cops who do this type of work, then we would see different changes. We had medical doctors who made sure that black doctors were hired when black women are um, dying during childbirth far more than any other race of women, then we would actually see other disparities close as well. So this work is not just in the social justice realm, and for Iranians, for professionals in so many different areas, and so much amazing things that we are really proud of, um, you can incorporate this into your everyday life and into your fields as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think we don't want to lose the significance of art. It does cut through a lot of times um, to the heart of things and convey the feelings that are really there that can times move people and also move them to action. And you also mentioned about social justice, and that's not something just for people who are in social sciences or who have certain fields or have to be in politics. It's really up to all of us to be involved with social justice. I know that term, unfortunately, has some connotations to it that for some people are negative. But what I mean is that we all, as human beings, have to fight for human rights for all human beings. It's not up to just some of us. It's not just for a few people or people that are directly affected. We all need to care. Uh, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And when we see injustice, we all need to stand up and do something about it. We should not stand back, let that bystander effect take place where we think, well, someone else will take care of it, or maybe it's not that big of a problem, or maybe it's supposed to be this way. We have to face injustice, and even uh, having this conversation today together, it's to make sure we continue having these conversations to make sure we recognize we can't shy away from talking about these things and facing these things. And that's why I wanted to have you on today, Uh, Dr. Valizad, I'm so happy you joined me and shared your I'm insights really about the work you're doing. Thank you, and we, you know that you're continuing to do. And I know that you're going to continue to spread that message of trying to get others involved and to see what they they can do. But thank you so much for for joining me today. Thank you. It was truly a pleasure to be there. Um, and yeah, another message about um, art is that even hip hop was really an activist movement. So we, mm-hmm. if, if everyone has different forms of activism. Some people are able to donate money, some people are able to protest, some people are able to write poetry, so so there's just a lot of different ways to really um, use that. And another thing that we can do is with our parenting, it's really making sure we're raising anti-racist children, children who have that human love that um, seems to be disappearing the more and more we're becoming remote. I mean, we're physical distancing, but we've been emotionally distancing for quite a while before uh, mm-hmm. COVID. So trying to uh, combat that and making sure our children are seeing others as people who they love and are their responsibility to um, work with. 
so yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really honored to be here and, and um, I've been a fan of yours since we met that day. I, I, I love the Thank way you. you talk about issues and the way that you've really used your platform. I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for joining me. And even in some of the last things you shared there, more topics for us to explore, hopefully on future shows together. But again, a big thank you to Dr. Nushin Valizada for joining me on the show today. And also thank you to Ghazal in the studio for coordinating everything and making it work. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.